0: Welcome to Left Foot. We invite fresh conversation on business development. Now here's your host, Nicole Giantonio. Today's episode is sponsored by Axiom, a recognized leader in the business of law. Axiom provides tech-enabled legal, contracts, and compliance solutions for large enterprises. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Left Foot. Today's guest assists both buyers and sellers through M&A transactions. She is outside general counsel for several privately held companies across a variety of industries and is the chair of the mergers and acquisitions subgroup within Holland and Hearts corporate practice group. Chris Grohl, welcome to Left Foot. Hi, Nicole. It's great to be here. Great to have you here today, Chris. Let's jump in and start with questions around your business development skills. Which of your personal strengths or habits have allowed you to be successful in
1: developing business? Nicole, I think for me, early on, I realized that large networking functions weren't my cup of tea. I'm... A bit more of an introvert, which doesn't mean that I'm shy or by any means quiet, but it does mean that those big functions where I have to try to work a room and don't really know anybody, they sap my energy. One of the things I have realized is that I really gain energy from personal relationships and more direct interactions with clients and colleagues. And so what I've done, and honestly, I didn't realize early on that this was business development. But what I've done is try to really get to know my client and through them, other people that they introduce me to and contacts in the community and do that on a perhaps more intense level than you would at a cocktail party. And that has allowed me to both do something I enjoy, but also to develop business because I get to know clients and I know who their kids are and I know the things they like to do. And so that helps me work with them a little bit, maybe more closely than just on a, just a one deal at a time basis. It also has helped me to gain referrals from existing clients because I maintain those relationships over time, regardless of where folks land. Obviously people move from company to company. And it also, it's just fun for me.
0: Great start to our discussion. I have to say, I'm hearing more and more this idea that we don't have to network in those traditional networking type environments to have a strong list of accounts, a strong funnel of growth opportunities. Have you had a client or prospective client respond in a surprised way? that you're working to develop a more personal relationship? Has anyone responded to that in a way that wasn't positive or maybe they were surprised in a in a positive
1: way? Has that happened to you? Sure. Uh, I guess both. I think some clients, because as lawyers, we bill by the hour, they think, let's just get right down to business. And I tend to say, hey, let's spend a few minutes just chatting and I'm not going to bill you for that. Or I do that ultimately when, when I send out my bill and I show that the conversation that we had, I didn't charge for. And so I think for, for some clients who initially may have a, an all-business reaction, I can either get them to understand that they're not paying for that time, or frankly, I listen to them and I realize that's not what they want from their lawyer and I back off and I become more about business in that instance. The flip side is I I have clients that tell me that that's part of what they really like about me. I I had a client last year tell me that he had never had an outside counsel who was able to just sort of pick him up when the times were rough and call him just to check in and see how he was doing. And this particular client said that no one that he'd ever worked with in nearly 20 years of being in-house had ever done that for him. And so that was a a very positive positive reaction to it. So I guess it goes both ways.
0: You talked about showing that time, possibly including it on the bill, but showing that it was not a billable charge when we tell clients, hey, by the way, I didn't charge for that time. That is time that we're spending to either reconnect or possibly they're telling you about something going on in their business, but it's not requiring your legal opinion. It's more about bringing you up to speed on their business. What does that time look like on an invoice? Are you labeling it a particular way or or basically lumping it into a reconnection or an ongoing summary? What does that look like?
1: It depends, obviously, on the type of conversation and what we talk about often what it will look like is you know telephone conference with Nicole regarding background of transaction and other industry matters or other company matters something like that and then it will say 0.5 or 1.0 no charge right on the bill if the client is looking closely at the bill and thinks back hey that was a call that I had with Chris and we did talk about a whole bunch of things that weren't imminently critical or didn't really require her legal advice. But look at that. She didn't charge me for it. The other thing I'll often do is I send all of my bills out to my clients personally by email or whatever way they request. But I don't have our accounting department send bills to my clients just because I feel like that is one more way to connect with my clients. And so if that's the case and I've had a significant amount of time where I haven't charged a client, I'll mention it in the cover email. And I'll say, as you'll see when you review the bill, there was this conversation where we spent two hours or whatever it was talking about background materials, and I didn't charge you for it so that it's right out there for them.
0: I think in a lot of professional services firms, that communication tends to be more accounting driven or finance driven. It is such a valuable part of the relationship using it to say, hey, this is not just something that a system generated. It's something that I've reviewed. It's something that I think at this point is accurate and it reflects what is transpiring between our services and the work we're doing for you. I think that's a great ad, and and something that would be valued by our listeners. You work for a sizable firm. How do you convey your growth strategy within the firm? I mean, what is that strategy and really how do you explain to others how you're growing your business? A
1: couple of ways. As an M&A lawyer, I work with teams all the time. And so I talk with with the more junior folks that I work with all the time about what I do. Because many, many years ago, when I was a, a young lawyer here at Holland and Heart, there was a presentation about business development done by several of our partners. And I very vividly remember one of the partners saying, I just don't like the big networking functions. It's not who I am, but I really enjoy my clients. And so if I see an article that I think they might like, I send it to them and And if I know that one of their kids has a birthday or they have a birthday, I send them a note. And that's more natural to me for whatever reason, probably because it matched with my personality a little bit more. That's stuck in my head. I always want to give back because I feel that there are lots of extroverts in my firm and in most firms. And and the, the way to develop a network when you're an extrovert, I think, is a little bit more obvious. If you're not that person, I think you have to hear from somebody, hey, it's okay to do this a little bit differently. And so I talk about it with my colleagues, the associates that I work with all the time. As far as the partners and the rest of the firm, again, because of what I do, I'm often putting Together, teams of people. And so the partners that I work with know when I'm putting together a team because they're often on that team. And we talk about how I keep in touch with clients. And I'm often the one to say, hey, it's time to go visit client X. We haven't seen them in person in a while and try to organize the the get together. And so I guess that's a little bit more low key in that I'm not sending out a firm wide announcement that I'm doing it. But if five of us go visit a client Together, those five people know that we've done it. And our firm's management asks when our compensation time comes up what teams have you organized? What have you done to help your partners stay busy and introduce your partners to your clients and vice versa? And so that gives me an opportunity to talk about those team efforts that I've gone through.
0: I so appreciate that comment. Giving permission. It's okay if you do not feel comfortable in that environment, it's okay if it's the last thing they want to do, as long as they're doing something else. For you, whether that's as a team going out and visiting clients and getting more comfortable in that smaller environment. I've had other guests say it's speaking at, at organized events where they feel just by being on the podium, more people are coming up to them. They're not the one having to make those introductions. and or you know, I've had many guests say they don't network, they don't like to network they write, they speak, they tweet, they do other things that are not requiring them to be the one walking up to that person. Thank you for sharing that. Cause I do think that is especially from our women, but definitely from not just women, right? We hear I'm not comfortable. I am not comfortable with that. (laughs) So very helpful.
1: And one other thing I would say, and I do say to especially younger lawyers with whom I, I talk is that it gets easier not because you like the big room filled with people you don't know any better, but because with time in a particular community, whether it's the MA community or your local community, you start to know more people. And then that room doesn't feel as intimidating because if you know a handful of people, then obviously you can you can talk with folks that you know. Know and through them get introductions to folks that you don't know, rather than walking into a room uh, filled with people that you you've never met before. So I encourage folks to stick with it and develop those personal relationships, and then use those as entries into larger groups. Which obviously, with time, you develop those relationships.
0: Absolutely agree. Lunch conversation around a conference room table when lunch is brought in, when you're not talking about business. That dinner that is. Going to occur because you have a team of five people that's coming in to meet with a client and they want to be gracious and arrange a dinner, or as a firm, you do, those things become more comfortable over time.
1: I've never had trouble with the lunches and the dinners because they're smaller groups. I tend to start talking to clients like you describe, what they're working on or frankly, personal questions, what's going on with their family and, and how old their kids are and things like that, which starts a conversation about them personally, as opposed to just their, their work life. No real tactic there as much as I just go to those smaller group events with my own innate curiosity about people and desire to develop a rapport with them. That just helps me to to have those conversations.
0: Chris, let's review a success story. Describe an experience where you were able to secure either a new account or a new piece of business within an account. Can you describe that experience and walk through the success that occurred, possibly even where you didn't think there would be success. Ultimately, it was a win for your firm.
1: Not to harp on the relationship idea, but it really has been pervasive through my career. So many years ago, in the late 90s, when I had first joined Holland and Hart, I started working with a client. I was an associate at the time and was working with a very senior partner. And I met a gentleman, um, his name is Jim, and he and I just developed a good relationship. We worked very well together together. I worked very hard for him and for his company. But I also just enjoyed spending time with him and getting to know him. And at the time, I had no earthly idea that this was business development. It was just getting to know somebody I found interesting and intelligent. And I was learning from him and and he appreciated my work and, and it all just fit. And so over the years, he and I maintained contact. He ultimately left that company and moved on. But because he was my friend now I kept in touch with him I perhaps was less frequent but it still we still kept in touch and so several years later when the general counsel of his new company asked him if he could recommend an M&A lawyer because the general counsel had not been thrilled with the com- with the firm they had been using Jim said absolutely call Chris I got on the phone with the general counsel and had a conversation and in part because of the way that conversation went and the recommendation from Jim, we were hired on a sort of trial basis. would like to have you do this one deal. Let's see how it goes. So that was great. And that got our foot in the door. We then went on to do great work for that client and I developed a great relationship with him and his team. And so after that deal, we were hired to do all of this new company's domestic mergers and acquisitions work. And in doing those deals, you probably know where this is going. I developed relationships with others on that team as well. And just recently, that general counsel has left that company, gone to yet another company, has already told me he plans to hire me there. But because I have relationships, not just with him, but with the other members of the team, I will hopefully retain the the client in between. And I'm obviously trying not to name names, but I'll have now many more clients because of the relationships. I don't mean to diminish the idea of good work. I mean, obviously, that's a necessary piece of all of this. I think if any of these people along the way had said, you know, the work isn't good, th- that would have been a non-starter. But I think good work is necessary, but not sufficient. And I think the stickiness of clients comes from those relationships that you develop. I think they work better when they're honest instead of an effort at just business development rather than an an interest in the other person.
0: Those are great points. So let's talk about that because we do hear a lot of lawyers do good work. They do. And a lot of firms are known for doing good work. When all other things are equal, it is the relationships that matter. I think where a lot of lawyers run into trouble is when they think the relationship is good and it's not as good as they thought. How do you ensure those relationships are good? You mentioned it briefly, you know, making sure those are honest relationships. How are you testing those? Are you asking for feedback regularly? Is there a feedback process with Holland and Heart that you rely on?
1: A little bit of both. Because I do develop close relationships with the point of contact that I'm, I'm dealing with, I ask all the time, how are things going? How are we doing? Anything you'd like us to do differently? I also make it a point in this day and age, so much is done by phone and video conference and email that I think we've lost a little bit of that in-person contact that maybe we used to have when we didn't have access to all of this technology. And so I make it a point of visiting my clients. Many of my clients are not local. And so I get on a plane and sometimes I do it by myself or as I mentioned before, I'll I'll go visit with a team. And while we're there over dinner or in a meeting, I will ask, how are we doing? How How is my colleague who's handling this other matter for you doing? And I hope you'll let me know if there's anything else we can do to help, but also if there's anything you'd like us to be doing better. In addition to that, Holland & Hart has a system for checking in with clients and we have our firm's management depending upon the particular client and the type of work involved. A member of our firm's management and perhaps my practice group leader. I. I'm the chair of the M&A practice group or sub practice group within our corporate practice group, our larger group. And so the practice group leader for the corporate group will have a conversation with a client if they're open to it and ask those sorts of questions in a setting where... If perhaps the client has something to say about me that he or she isn't comfortable saying directly to my face, then he or she might say it to my practice group leader or my firm management. So it's a multi-layered way of getting in touch with and checking in with clients to see how things are going.
0: Great to hear that you are asking. It makes it easier to, again, to say, I am open to feedback. Please provide that feedback. And it is helpful, I think, to get that other
1: check. Sometimes you hear good things that your client really likes that you're doing that you had no idea they even noticed. And so that's great feedback too. And
0: now a quick break and a word from our sponsor. Axiom's solutions combine legal experience, technology, and data analytics to deliver work in a way that dramatically reduces risk, cost, and cycle time. With over a 1,000 plus lawyers and 2,000 plus employees across three continents, the Axiom team experiences nerdy excitement from improving the way legal, compliance, and contracts work is done. For more information, go to axiomlaw.com. Times are changing. The economy has changed in the last 15 years. We're seeing more competition. We're seeing more... Discussion about rates in professional services. There's alternative ways of getting legal service support. What have you seen that has really forced you to address clients' needs in a different way?
1: A couple of things. Clients have been asking more and more for estimates and potentially for alternative fee arrangements. Several years ago, gosh, it's probably almost 10 years ago now, I had a client who asked me to track a tra- transaction by task not just the overall total amount billed but how much time and and money was spent on the due diligence process how much time was spent on drafting the purchase agreement how much time on negotiation etc and at the time it was it was a real pain it was a hassle to have everybody on the team track their time separately but at the end of that deal we had this great amount of information and data that we could use when thinking about the next deal we did for that client. And we could say when they asked for an estimate, well, how do you think this deal compares to the last deal we did? Do you think there will be more diligence? Do you think there'll be less? Do you think the lawyers on the other side are more apt to negotiate harder or um, about the same? And so it gave us a tool to provide that estimate in a more realistic, informed fashion. And so since then, I have developed better ways to to track by task without quite as much headache. And I do that pretty regularly with deals that I work on. Sometimes clients don't want that level of detail. And so I don't provide it to them if they don't want it, but I have it for myself and for my team. And so we can look at a series of deals and more readily come up with those estimates that clients are asking for all the time now and feel comfortable about that estimate because it's a little bit more granular. In my experience, clients ask about alternative fee arrangements, but they ultimately don't actually select them. We're very open to them. But I have found that more than truly alternative fee arrangements, what clients are interested in is certainty. It's a business. They have to budget for their outside legal expense. And that's very simple and very obvious. And so this ability to estimate both more rapidly and more accurately, I think, has given many of my clients more comfort, especially over time when they see we meet those estimates, I think that gives them a little bit more certainty. And that's really what they're trying to get at underneath the request for alternative fees and other similar arrangements. I
0: absolutely agree with you. It is really not that they're uncomfortable with the hourly rate or the time that it's going to take. It's that idea of budgeting, having an understanding and really understanding when one particular project is much higher expense. Why?
1: And that gets back again to my relationships with my clients. I have that conversation when I know things are changing or something about the project that is coming up that we didn't expect, that the client didn't expect and we didn't expect and so we didn't budget for it. I have that conversation early rather than waiting until the end of the transaction and and showing up with a bill that is one and a half or two times what was expected. There's a conversation, okay, here's where this is headed. This sounds to me like it's different than what we expected. I think this will cost more or here's how much this new issue may cost. Do you still want us to proceed? And nine times out of 10, the client will say, absolutely, yes, we need you to do this in order to get the deal done. But now they know what the cost of doing that is. And so every once in a while they say, you know what? No, we actually don't want you to do that. And we were really glad that you asked at this point. So we knew what we were getting into.
0: Very strong business practice, one that clients do appreciate, keeping them in the loop and communicating with them. What have you seen either within your firm or lawyers that you know in other firms, have you seen anything that's
1: innovative, a
0: practice that a lawyer is using to grow their business
1: that's really smart? I've seen a lot of what I've just described to you. I've seen lawyers at other firms that do similar things. I I talk with people that do M&A at other firms and they're also seeing similar situations where they're, they're not really being asked for alternative fees, but they are being asked for estimates and they've developed their own system like, the one I described, technology has allowed us to be much more responsive to our clients and develop extranets. in some level, that's innovative, but on another level, most of us are doing it. So while it might have been innovative a couple of years ago, it's really standard practice now. One thing that I was involved in over this past year that is, I think, very innovative, I was a participant in a women in law hackathon that was arranged by an organization called Diversity Lab. The chair of our firm was asked to nominate somebody to participate. Fortunately for me, she she nominated me. There were 54 law firms who participated in this six-month project where the goal was to come up with innovative ways to retain and advance experienced women in law firms. We have been 50% of law grads for a long time, but if you look at the statistics across the country, in many firms, we're less than 20% of equity partners. Holland and Hart does a little bit better. Than that, but we're still at about 30%. And so we're a long way from gender equality or parity at the partner level. So we spent six months, a group of us, thinking about and coming up with ideas for ways to resolve this. And it culminated in a Shark Tank like competition that was held in June, where the seven teams presented to judges that were in house counsel and other thought leaders in this area. There were seven great. Ideas. My team happened to be the one that presented the winning idea. While this isn't as much about business development, I think that ultimately the hope is that it leads to firms doing the right thing and increasing the numbers of their women, senior associates, and partners. But we also see clients demanding that now. Clients who have a commitment to diversity are asking for their outside council teams to be diverse. Although it didn't start out as a business development tactic or strategy, I think it will become one for those firms that adopt some of these strategies that came up during this very innovative competition.
0: Thank you for highlighting that here. The entry your team came up
1: with was entitled SMART. Can you define SMART for our listeners? Stands for Solutions for Measuring, Advancing and Rewarding Talent. And we looked at empirical data that shows that one of the things that is demonstrable is that on average, women partners get paid less than male partners and that those women and diverse lawyers who leave firms say pretty consistently that one of the reasons they've left those firms is because they didn't get enough mentoring and they didn't get enough of the good, exciting projects that maybe were available to their male counterparts. And so the idea of SMART was to both track the time spent on activities that we know will help encourage women and other diverse lawyers to stay with a firm, things like mentoring, things like staffing women and diverse lawyers on interesting projects, but then also went a step farther because many firms already do track those kinds of time commitments. But went a step farther to create an app that would allow you to more easily track Those hours to see your progress in the different areas. And we ask that firms' management give to their associates and partners guidance about how much time that firm wants each lawyer to spend on various tasks. Every firm has a different culture. Every firm has a different set of values. But with that guidance, lawyers can sort of self-monitor how they spend their time and where they devote their precious time. And also the hope is that those who do spend time in those areas will be financially rewarded over time because firms' management, has been bought into the idea and has said this is valuable to us. We'll see. The proof will be in the pudding. Diversity Lab it has committed to developing several of the ideas that came out, including SMART, and we will be involved in that development and we hope to implement the program.
0: One of the legal push emails I get each morning was talking about the new criteria, let's say it that way, for associates to make partners. One of the comments that was made is that the associate didn't clearly understand, besides good work, the other things that they needed to do to become a partner. That it wasn't spelled out for them and that they had not actually spent as much time and didn't feel comfortable spending time on some of the things that were further away from good work. Okay any kind of way that we can use technology. And it sounds like that would be applied here to really say it's okay to spend time on this. And it's okay to spend time on that because that will further the firm. It will further your standing within the firm. And per the smart solution will also really address those things that are standing in in the way of that
1: additional compensation. That's a great point. People that leave say they didn't know what they needed to do to succeed. And so one of the other goals of SMART is, it lays it right out there. And so for some people, they'll say, these aren't things that I want to do. And that's not necessarily a good thing in terms of losing that person. At the same time, it allows folks to understand what's expected of them and choose to either do those things and know what it takes to succeed at a particular firm or decide this isn't quite for me. I'll find a place for myself that does fit with who I am.
0: Chris, what do you enjoy most about the work that you do?
1: I'm a deal junkie. I just love the adrenaline of deals and I don't actually play chess, but I think that deals are a little bit like a chess match where you can't just think about what you're going to do about the particular issue that's in front of you at a moment in time. You always have to be thinking about the ultimate end goal of a closed, successful transaction and how each thing you do affects what the other party is likely to do and affects your ability to get to the ultimate end goal. Something about that just it gives me energy. I really enjoy it. You won't be surprised to hear that I enjoy the relationships that I develop while doing deals because anyone who does deals knows you spend a lot of time, whether on the phone or on emails or in person with people when you're doing a deal, because it can be a very intense period of time, sometimes compressed into a short time frame. And I just have found that I develop more in-depth relationships with the folks that I work with in that way, because we're sort of in the trenches together for some period of time, that's pretty much what I love about what I do.
0: Thank you. Great responses. Appreciate the detail. Thank you for that.
1: Any last points you'd like to share before we say goodbye? I focused on it a lot. It's the development of relationships and especially those in-person interactions. I think some of our younger folks get a little bit lost in the, the emailing and texting and tweeting and LinkedIn and all the all the great things that are necessary. But I always encourage them to meet clients in person somehow, some way. I think that helps you plant seeds for the development of your practice over time. And frankly, for me, it makes the practice more fun. Get outside your comfort zone, try new things. But once you've tried them, don't do anything that you hate to do because ultimately that will not be good for you or for your clients or colleagues. It's not something that you'll do well if you really hate doing it. The combination of, of in-person and knowing yourself.
0: Eric Press, I interviewed him a few episodes ago and this is worth repeating, he said, you know, for God's sake, don't do anything you're not comfortable (laughs) with. Don't do it. You don't have to. So find the things you are comfortable with and do those.
1: I would put a nuance on that. I would say try the things you're not comfortable with once because you might find that you actually are good at it and enjoy it. Chris, thank you. It's been a pleasure having you as a guest on Left Foot. Thanks so much, Nicole. I appreciate your time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Left Foot. Be sure to visit www.leftfoot.net to access show notes, sign up for our weekday series, and embrace
0: what it means to lead with the left foot.